I married the Iceman. I first met the Iceman at the ski resort hotel. I guess that's the kind of place one ought to meet an Iceman. In the boisterous hotel lobby, crowded with young people, the Iceman was sitting sitting in a chair at the furthest possible remove from the fireplace, silently reading a book. Though it was approaching high noon, it seemed to me that the cool, fresh light of the winter morning still lingered around him. Lightning Recap In The Iceman by Haruki Murakami A woman marries a cold man. Hello, we've got a little time. And you've got a little podcast? Sure, why not? This, this what we're doing now is called Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia here today with... Christy L. Baxter, and the L stands for uh, Lioness. Uh, The J in Christopher J. Garcia stands for Christopher J. Garcia. I do not abbreviate. Uh, <laughs> it's a lovely day here in northern, southern, central California, and I am reminded that stories in the summer just hit different, especially when they're about cold things. What cold things should we have read about? We should have read about climbing Mount Everest. No, I did that another summer. No, we should have read about the Iceman. I have to read about cold things in the summer, I guess, by Haruki Murakami. Now, this is our first Murakami story, and I think it might be our first translated from the Japanese story. Oh, I do believe that's true. Uh, and it is a it is a strange story, and I might go so far as to say it's magical realism. I'm just just putting that out there. I would agree with that. No, I agree with that fully. And it is literally a story of either a man made of ice from the South Pole or just someone who doesn't feel feel things. Yeah, sort of uh, got a like a sociopathic kind of vibe or somebody who's just kind of like empty inside, no soul, that kind of deal. Um or a literal ice, you know, man made of ice who comes from the South Pole and somehow manages to magically manipulate his wife into taking their honeymoon down there because that's what everybody does. Yeah, and I, I'm shocked by one, the methodology of storytelling here is so simple. It is, it is not a complex telling, which interests me because I know a lot of people who love Murakami, specifically because he's a little bit convoluted. (laughs) Yes, it's very, very um, straightforward. And I think that might be one of the reasons why we kind of tend to push it towards magic realism, because magical realism, despite its magic, has that sort of straightforwardness because it's just it's just pushing on ahead in spite of your questions. Mm-hmm. It, that's that's a very good point. It does not, 
it does not insist on answering things, which is one of the things I love about all of the magical realism shorts that we've been reading over the years. And I think this story does something that a lot of them haven't. That this story takes something very, very pedestrian and makes it very, very pedestrian, but also magical at the same time. It is a simple story. It's not like uh, the best example, I think, is the handsomest dead man in the world, uh, where that is an exceptional happening that is kind of treated as an exceptional happening, even though it's kind of simplistic. It's just a dead guy washing up. Here, it is just the story of a relationship where one of the people happens to be super extraordinary. And it's all the same things that happen in every relationship, in every semi-tortured relationship. And I think that, you know, the fact that the family doesn't like him, there's all sorts of things you can tie into this. There's the aspect of... uh, because he is an ice man and is rejected by her family, that there's the whole aspect of, you know, the outsider coming into the family and being automatically rejected, I think is one of the, the clear themes that I love. And I think it's not focused on as much as it is just simply a fact that they keep rolling with. Yeah, we never really there's no stopping for any sort of like introspection or or examination um, either on the part of the narrator or on the, on the part of the writer. And that's fine. That's, that's good. I like that personally. Um, I think it allows you to get more swept up in the story. Honestly, if you're not uh, constantly stopping to, to ask questions. And um, I also feel like, like you said about relationships and everything, it's, I kind of think of it maybe as it could be among the many things that it could be. It could be sort of an analog to the relationship between maybe somebody with a lot of uh, like a huge amount of talent and somebody who's more normal, you know? Interesting. Like how how that talent can like swallow everything up and just become the central focus of the relationship. And that is sort of an, an analog to going to the South Pole. Now that, that's fascinating. That's a that's a way above my intelligence level reading of this. Um, whoa. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think that that one of the interesting things about the idea of the South Pole, we know intellectually that the South Pole is nothing but a whole bunch of snow and maybe a couple of penguins. Uh, but here, the South Pole is treated as it's just another place that happens to be cold. Uh, I, for some reason, picture uh, the town of, oh, what's it called? They send the people and there was a fight over it by that country called England. And it's very cold there. Greenland? No. (laughs) (laughs) There's a city. Oh, man, what's it called? The Falklands. They have a. uh, Okay. Yeah, it's cold there. Things are cold. Oh yes, I I so very rarely think of the Falklands. I must tell you, I you know what I spend all day every day thinking. You know what, man, the Falklands, man. Uh, But I think that what it is is we're given this type of person that doesn't exist, 
And the only way that they can exist is by being in a place that exists in our world, but that place is completely different than we could ever picture that place being in our world. And I think part of that is choosing the South Pole instead of like, you know, uh, Nineveh or anywhere, you know, up in the northern reaches of Canada where people actually live. There's a city in the the northernmost city in the United States uh, is super, super, super cold and people live there. And the reason to, not to choose a place like that is it's a place that we have nothing we can attach to other than this idea that it's in the middle of nowhere, that we don't have any experience of it, except for, you know, if you're a scientist or I guess a penguin. But penguins don't read magical realism. Most of the time, yes. Um, that is true. It's like a cultural touchstone or an archetype, but it's a blank one. It's so weird. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, and I think that's beautiful because if you think of this as an anti-Santa Claus story, uh, that if this were to touch a Santa Claus story, the two of them would explode and release energy. <laughs> it, it, you know, we have the North Pole as this idea, also frickin' freezing, but we apply a magic to it. The South Pole, we are also here applying a magic to it, but I would doubt very much Murakami would have that cultural touchstone of Santa Claus to go to. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like there's any analogs to Christmas, but I guess at the same time you could almost be like it's you know the the, the Iceman is sort of that absence of a soul and in the the South Pole is sort of that absence of of warmth and happiness, which you know Christmas is. So you could stretch it that way, I guess. And I stretch many, many things. I love that. Um, I think that I, what I like about this story is that our main character is pretty much as blasé as you can come. Uh, it's just every woman I've ever known who has married a guy who was just not there. <laughs> and it's interesting that I really don't feel like the Iceman is anything to this story other than her reaction to him. And I think that's a very, very difficult thing to portray that he has no, I think it's, we're supposed to believe he has no soul. And because he has no soul, the only impact he can make on the reader is through the reactions of others to him. That's a very good point. I didn't think of it like that, but that is pretty much all we get. Um, we don't get very much of him actually acting on his own behalf or any sort of initiative on his part. You're right. He's not an actor. He's a reactor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that. When you can give that sort of character to a story, they become less of a character and I think more of a setting. I think this film, this film, it's film festival mm. week, Bay Area. Um, I think this type of story, the setting is more the Iceman than it is the places where the story takes place. It is being in proximity of this character that defines all the other characters. I think that's how the setting evolves, that the setting is 
just the proximity to this character, which I think speaks a lot to how the the family rejects him, how his wife doesn't necessarily completely reject him, but the acceptance is strange and strained, I would say. Yeah, and I think it really, uh, it definitely helps to make a character be more setting if you imbue them with one aspect of setting, which is weather. And that's what we have with the Iceman here. Yeah. Oh, man, I didn't even catch that. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> I I really do think that Murakami's language here is, it's remarkable in that it comes at everything in much the same way that we do when we get translations from various other uh, magical realist writers. But there's a... It's either that the translator is remarkable. I don't know. Does Murakami write in English? I don't think so. Um, I would be the wrong person to ask. I, I am not sure, honestly, at all. Yeah, I would. I would assume not. But then again, I have been wrong. What? You never. <laughs> Thank you. You've earned another year on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think one of the one of the things is that the economy of the language here really speaks to sort of this tradition of how how do you pare things down? And I think by using this sort of simplistic character, and I think the Iceman is legitimately a simplistic character, and I think that's good. And by paring things down, including the language, you enable that character to grow in stature as it were because you're not expecting all of this flowery uh definite you know thoughts and feelings and sort of evocative nature of this character and i like that yeah i mean really the the time that we should have a, a more stripped down you know story is definitely when we have a story about winter the most you know like stripped down season of them all if you you know live in my part of the world um where sometimes you can just look outside and see nothing but white oh you live in westchester county <laughs> no <laughs> i i want to say that this is a this is a story that you could tie a lot of sort of social aspects to and you can almost look at any cult you can look at any culture that has an outsider population and someone marrying into that outsider population what is interesting is which are the outsiders the ice man or the non-ice men um which is that's another discussion that we could go into but when we see the south pole it seems like the Iceman is even there, not necessarily embraced as much as you would expect someone in their natural habitat to be. Yeah, when you brought up the Iceman versus the non-Iceman, I realized, ironically, that this is a fish out of water tale, but who is the fish out of water changes based on location. Booyah! That's mm -hmm. exactly... Uh, 
different fish, different oceans. <laughs> right. And I love the fact that the, the, when we're most shown that the fish out of water is going to become of the water is one of the most heartbreaking parts of this story. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. And this is a story that it, it does pack a gut punch at the very end. I think that's, that's something that this story does really well, is it basically says, you know, you'll never find happiness, so just you're going to have to accept what you're at, even if it's awful. <laughs> that's a little dark, I think. It's a little, it's a little disheartening. <laughs> One has to admit, yeah, it doesn't leave you with a whole lot of uh, warm fuzzies, but that's okay. Sometimes, sometimes you can't. I would say it's a cold closing. <laughs> yes, I would agree with you. It left me a bit frosty. <laughs> I could go for a frosty right now. Wendy's are too far away, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Got anything else on this one there, Christy? Uh, no, I did. I did enjoy it. It was it was very, uh, despite it's being pared down, very gorgeously written. Oh, absolutely. I I am now intrigued to go and get some more Murakami in my life. Same, same, same. Yes. Hey, hey, Christy. Yes. What are we going to read next week? Next week, we are going to read Fools by, hang on a second, I had this in my browser a second ago. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> People don't understand. I've got like this week's story in one window and next week's story in another window. And who knows which window is which. And then if I can't find it, then I have to go to our calendar. And then it's in there in a link, which I'm doing right now. And I'm explaining to you as so as to uh, fill the silence. Uh, Fools by Gina Chen. Ooh, excellent. Uh, an author I have never read before again. Well, this was in the uh, Foreshadow anthology uh, that was published. I think the last one was back in, uh, I want to say 20. Well, it's, it's copyright 2023, so maybe they're still doing it. Um, but it's a young adult anthology and I think every, uh, issue they choose, uh, like a compelling new voice and, you know, uh, th this one was chosen for, uh, a couple issues ago. So I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, I am looking forward to being compelled. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Should be interesting. Well, until then, this is compellingly been short story, short podcast. <laughs>